There have been times before where I have given you something in the service. Maybe you were here a few weeks ago. We are talking about the book of James, and you received a mirror. You got a little pocket mirror. Maybe, you, maybe you've kept that, and you've been reminded that every time I look in that, it's a symbol of me looking into God's Word and having reflected back to me what God says about me, what God says I need to do, the life that I need to be living, the life that He has prepared for me, and so on. Maybe you've got that. Uh, several, several weeks ago, even a couple of months ago, I think it was back in January, I gave out dominoes. Maybe some of you still have that domino, and, and maybe you've forgotten what it means. You're saying, what, what did he give that to us for? Well, let me remind you, the domino was during a, a, a sermon that we had on giving. And the idea is that in order to have the things in your life financially lined out and blessed the way that God wants you to, the first domino of generosity and and recognizing that it's all God's anyway, and I will give generously, that domino has to fall. So that's the reason. So maybe you look at that domino, and, and now you remember. And this morning, I want to give something out, but it's not going to be for everybody. It's just going to be for my favorite people. I just want you to know that. Just If you receive something today, it's because you are one of my favorites. And I've only got four of them, so there's only four people this morning that are my favorites. <clears throat> and it's based upon one simple criteria, just one. And that's either you are a member of or heading toward being a member of the Bald Brotherhood. I am on my way, well on my way to, to full-fledged membership. I'm an apprentice right now, so I look at myself. I, I'm in training. And my hair has definitely been in training for the last 10 years. It jumps out at every opportunity that it can. And I realize we may have a few more guys than four, so I'm just going to try to give these as quickly as I can now, we have some guys who you, you're trying to hide it. Now, I understand. You know, I, I, I was reading in a magazine one time because I was getting pretty frustrated. I was trying to do everything I could with my hair. And it's been falling out since college. And there's just, it, you know, sure to spend a lot of money for, you know, implants or medicine or whatever. Some of maybe tried that. I just, I don't have money to do it. And I guess, I, you know, if the Lord wanted me to have hair, I guess he'd put it back on my head. So, um, but, I, you know, I tried, tried different things. I tried letting it grow a little bit. You been there? And some of you fellas, and, I, and so I, you know, I kind of, I kind of let it grow out, and maybe I spike it up here, there, make it look like you know it's all supposed to be thin, you know, kind of spike it up, sort of. And and then I tried uh, kind of growing it out, and it wasn't long, but kind of pulling it forward to cover up, you know, the gaps here. And I kind of spike it up in the front, maybe to distract you, you know, you wouldn't notice. <laughs> and then I read in a magazine. I, 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 I was reading in a, in, a, in a magazine that said, a guy had written in, and his question was, what do I do about a receding hairline? <laughs> Man, I could have written that, you know. And it, it was a woman who, who was responding to the question, which is probably the best you know, thing, you know, because guys, you know, we, we tend to ignore some of those things. You know, we, we, we think we're hiding it when we're really not and so on. And so the, this woman replies, and she says, well, you know, you can try some things. And she sort of goes down the list of all the things I just tried. Let it grow a little bit, pull it forward, spike it up. All that. So I'm like, all right. And then in her last sentence, she said, but at some point you have to cut the hair and the denial really close. And so here I am. And once a week I save money on haircuts just by cutting it myself. And so uh, so maybe you're like that. Maybe you're a guy and, and uh, you're you're, you're you're on your way or already a full-fledged member of the of the Bald Brotherhood. And and I, I celebrate with you. You're my favorite people this morning. And so uh, I'm kind of looking around. I certainly don't want to embarrass anybody. But listen, 
I have to stand up in front of everybody every week and look like this, all right? So if you, you know, you maybe you're sitting there and you just think, oh, don't, don't call on me. Listen, it's okay, all right? They, they, they snicker and laugh at me. They're not noticing you yet, all right? And so maybe we can be discreet. So I'd like to, I have just a, a small little gift. It's not much, but just to show you how much I care about you, how, how favorite how favorite you are in my eyes. I've just, I've got a small little gift, and some of you are going to refuse it. Don't put me in that group. And listen, I understand. All right, I'll, I'll try. I, you know, some of you have chosen to be bald, you know, because you want to be. Now, you know, that's cool. Others, you just, you know, got no choice. All right, so let, let, let me kind of look around here just just a little bit. Well, this is going to be tough. You know, this is, this, this, this is one of those positions a preacher never wants to be in, because I'm, I'm definitely, I'm going to embarrass somebody. But how about, let me let me just start on, on this set. We've got a guy over here with really short hair, and I like this. I like this right here. There you go. Thanks thanks for your support. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Now, wait, let's see here. Okay, we've, got, we've got some. We've got some. Why don't you pass that down for me, okay? <laughs> Listen. Absolutely. Nelson and I have talked about it. We're proud. We are both proud. You better believe that. We talked about it. I appreciate that. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Let's see who else we got. We got some others coming around here. Nobody, everybody's kind of ducking, ducking now. All right. Mike, your hair's pretty short. I like that. I like that. That's one down. Absolutely. I give one of my buddy David here in the back. Listen, it's something to celebrate now as I walk, you know, and, you know, there you go. You know what really got me I, I, is when it started going in the back. You know, I can deal with it in the front, but what the back is just that. Anyway, but both my grandfathers were like that. I guess I'm sort of uh, destined to be like that. Listen, if you just got a gift, I appreciate your support. Uh, we, we are in it together. Maybe we can all gather. You got a little McDonald's gift card. We'll all gather McDonald's and celebrate our baldness. How about that, all right? over some coffee or ice cream or whatever, and we'll laugh at everybody who's trying to cover up what God has already said is going to happen. So anyway, you know, it's, it's and through that simple little example, you know, you realize, I think, how ridiculous it is. If I were to be serious about the fact that people who have little or no or losing their hair, were, they were my favorites, and I associated with no one else simply because that's how God made us is to lose our hair at a certain period of time. Some younger than others, like me. Some you hang on to it a little while longer. Some you just cut it short by choice. How ridiculous really is it for me to say, you all are my favorite people. Listen, I don't care about anybody else. I've got those four guys that are with me. And that's all I care about. And you all are my favorite, favorite people. And then I left a couple of you out. You've got some others. You're like, wait a minute. Now, listen, I'm proud. You know, I want a gift card, too. I only have four. I apologize. But, you know, it's kind of ridiculous to play favorites just arbitrarily. But, but I, as ridiculous as it seems, I think it's true that we often do just that. We often do just that. We, we play favorites, maybe without knowing it, but on some ridiculous circumstances. Our criteria for playing favorites is sometimes as goofy as just whether or not somebody shares the same hairstyle or haircut. Earlier, we had a fellowship time, as we do most every Sunday. And I told you from the baptistry, hey, I want you to shake a hand, greet someone, and welcome them in the home. I'll tell you that every Sunday morning. 
didn't stay around to watch, so I don't have anybody in mind. And we may have done an excellent job this morning. But I want you to think just for a second. Think back 15, 20 minutes ago to whose hand you shook. Just think. And maybe maybe right next to you. So it's not it's not 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 easy or not hard rather to, to remember. But in a much more serious way, sometimes don't we play favorites, even in little things like the handshaking time. And we see somebody who's new or see somebody who's different or see somebody we don't really know. And there's an avoidance that maybe we don't know where it comes from. And we really don't like that about ourselves, but we don't do anything about it. Been there, done that. Listen, I, I, I understand. As you think about those people that you shook hands with, how many of them are related to you? Or are your really good friends? Or are the people that are there every Sunday that you sit next to? Probably several. How many of the people that you shook hands with, that you that you fellowshiped with, that you welcomed to Elm Grove, or folks that you had never done that to before? And I think in simple little examples like that, we, we see in ourselves some of how we subtly maybe play favorites. And again, I didn't stick around to watch. I don't have anybody in particular in mind, and my goal is not to step on toes just for the sake of stepping on toes, but I think the Bible has a lot to say about it, and we'll see it this morning. Favoritism and preferential treatment always happens as, some, as one person is preferred at the expense of someone else. Somebody always loses. When we play favorites, somebody wins and somebody loses. When we give preferential treatment to one, we cost the other the same thing. And so we have that working definition of what favoritism is, preferential treatment of one at the expense of another. Maybe you've had that happen to you. Maybe you're the person this morning even who nobody shook your hand. Or maybe you felt avoided. Or maybe you've been there and done that before. Maybe you're the person that at work or school or in your home even, that you seem to not be the favorite. And maybe you were that little child, and you're just warped now because the oldest was favored and the baby was favored, but what about me? You know, maybe that's been you. You've carried that for so long. I don't know. Well, maybe your experience has been that you've, you've felt that others have been favored over you. You know, there are different types of favoritism, obviously. There's favoritism based upon age. You know, we have our favorites based upon whether they're old, young, in between, our age, not our age. Maybe you, know, maybe you prefer people of a particular age, whatever age you are. They're, they're, we play favorites on race. There's no question that our country has an awful, awful history. And not just history, but oftentimes current ex existence on the base of racism. What a shame. What a shame. We play favorites based on our relation to one another. Maybe we like only our family members. Blood's well, thicker than water, we say. You know, maybe we like only our family members. And that's who we play favorites with. Or, or maybe it's based upon how much money someone has or doesn't have. That's an easy one. We often do that, whether we realize it or not. Maybe we play favorites based upon how somebody looks. And we wouldn't want to admit this, but as long as somebody looks fairly what we would describe or you would describe as normal or average or, well, they just, yeah, they're, they're okay. 
then, then we'll, we'll go out of our way or we'll, we'll talk with him and others who are sort of different in their appearance. We, we God said hello. You know, that was enough. Maybe you've played favorites before, seen it on, on perceived spiritual maturity. You see somebody and you think, man, they've really got it with God. I, I just want to be around them all the time. Maybe it's based upon personality or intelligence. And there are lots and lots of ways you could fill in the blank. Favoritism is played out in this. You could fill in the blank. But the truth is, favoritism, I think, according to Scripture, and then obviously just common sense, is both ridiculous, like those gift cards I gave out to people who were just bald. And it's also a serious matter. Because the Bible calls it sin. I want you to turn with me to James chapter 2. James is over in the New Testament, right after the book of Hebrews, right before the book of 1 Peter. So if you've got a Bible today, I'd like for you to turn there with me. James chapter 2, and just hold your place there because that's where we'll camp out today for a time and look at what James has to say to us. We have been in a series on the book of James called Authentic Christianity. We've been through chapter 1. We're beginning today chapter 2. And so for the next couple of weeks, we'll look at chapter 2 and how it both reveals and tests the authenticity of our Christianity. If we say we follow Jesus, if we say, like Jason did this morning, yes, I am a Christian, yes, I have given my life to Jesus Christ, what should that look like? What should happen inside and outside of us to display that? And so we're learning what it means to live that authentic Christian life, and we're also being changed, I hope, in our approach to life, being changed by the Scripture, and what James has written under the power of the Holy Spirit on how we should live as authentic Christians. Look with me. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. My brothers, hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ without showing favoritism. And he makes it pretty simple there. There's this thesis statement for you English majors. There he is telling us, here's what I'm going to talk about. It is imperative that you get this. He opens his paragraph in this particular chapter with this statement. Hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ without showing favoritism. Now, again, understand the scripture. He's not trying to knock you down. How does he open? What are the two words he says? My brothers. He's got a pastor's heart. He's wanting them to understand. He's trying to help them. So the scripture today is not meant to knock you upside the head. It's meant to help you experience and live out the kind of life that Jesus wants for you. So he says, look, he said, I'm in this with you. You are my brothers. Let's move toward Jesus together. And so he says, hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ without showing favoritism. There's a statement. Then he gives an example of what favoritism is. For suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring. Just kind of picture this in your mind. Back then, they're having their meetings. Maybe even today you can translate this. Dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. So you can picture that. If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes so that you say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, which is a position of humiliation, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the idea is favoritism is wrong. Here's an example of how it's wrong. So he tells us, the rich and the poor, and he gives us an example of what they were dealing with at that particular time. In verse 5, listen, here it is again, my dear brothers, I'm in it with you. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonored that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name that you bear, the name of Jesus Christ? Verse 8, if you really carry out the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show favoritism, 
does he say? You commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Somebody who stepped over the line. God said, here's the line. We stepped over it. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. It's a unit. The law is a unit. You break one part, you're guilty as if you've broken it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. They go together. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. Verse 12, speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I think it's very clear here what exactly the Bible says about favoritism. You'll see there on the back of your bulletin if you like to follow along, there's an outline. Fill in a few blanks and encourage you to use that as a reference. It's also to help maybe keep you engaged as we go along this morning, but use it as a reference. Go back and further study the words and the points that we talk about this morning. What exactly does the Bible say? I think it's very clear. The Bible says this, that authentic Christianity and ongoing favoritism cannot coexist. It doesn't mean that, well, it shouldn't be there. It means they cannot coexist. He says in verse 1, hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. There's authentic Christianity without showing favoritism. They are incongruent for you math majors. We're touching all the majors. English majors, math majors, you got it. They're incongruent. They don't go together. They're different. They're diametrically opposed to one another. Authentic Christianity and ongoing favoritism cannot, James says, coexist. And that's his thesis for this particular opening part of this chapter. That's what he's trying to say to us. Now, let me tell you this. There is a difference, obviously, between one time and occasional favoritism and then ongoing or a pattern of life type favoritism. So we're not talking here in James about sinless perfection. And then, well, you know, I, I feel like I sort of discriminated. I feel like I was a little prejudiced. I feel like I, I played favorites in this, so I guess I'm not a Christian. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about ongoing lifestyle-based favoritism. And he says, based upon the authority of the Holy Spirit and God's Word, both in the Old and New Testament, he says, look, if God truly lives inside of you, if the Holy Spirit is inside of you, if that's Jesus in your life, then you cannot continue with an attitude and a lifestyle of favoritism. You can't. That's basically what he's saying. They cannot coexist. So you go back to those types of favoritism based on age or race or relationships or money or appearance or spiritual maturity or personality, intelligence, and so on. He's talking about if those things, if those ways of playing favorites are habitual in your life, then by implication, you better take a long look inside to say, do I truly know Jesus? Because if I truly do, those things won't be the pattern. They'll just be occasional because I do sin as a Christian. And so I understand what he's talking about, but he does make it very clear that authentic Christianity and ongoing favoritism simply cannot exist. If you claim to know and follow Jesus, those things cannot be a part of the pattern of your life. They simply cannot be. Why is, why is that? Well, that sounds great, but I mean, we, you know, we've got, sometimes we've got these things that are sort of built in. Maybe you're raised in a family that plays favorites, based upon one of those categories or something else. Maybe it's just historically, well, my dad was like this, my granddad was like that, and his dad, and good grief. For as long as my family's been around, it's just kind of been the way we operate. But we still love Jesus. You know, we, we, we treat people differently, you know, we, we discriminate, but, you know, it's just, we kind of gloss over those things sometimes, don't we? Why is it then that authentic Christianity and ongoing favoritism cannot exist? I think James gives us the answer, and it's 
pretty simple. The first of which is this, that it goes against the example of Jesus. It goes against the example of Jesus. Those two things, authentic Christianity and ongoing favoritism, trying to put those together goes against the example of Jesus. He says that faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, he's in charge, he's our model, he's who we're following. He's the one our faith is built on. So we've got to look at his example. Hold your place there in James. And I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke, which is still in the New Testament, just a little bit to your left. It's one of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. You may want to have your pencil ready. Write this down. Because what I want to show you is the example of Jesus. I want to show you exactly why it is that the example of Jesus and ongoing favoritism are incongruent, why they cannot coexist. And I'm going to roll through several scriptures. I'm not going to read them all. They're not going to be on the screen behind me. So maybe you want to write some of these down and then go back. In fact, one thing I would, I would, would challenge you to do is at some point, maybe even this week, is to read the book of Luke and look at all of the, the reversals that happen. We'll see some of those. Look at all the things that Jesus does through his example and his words and his actions and how he reverses what people thought were original, was originally going to happen. In chapter 2, you have two great reversals. You have Jesus being born in Bethlehem. But Bethlehem was not a popular town. There were just a few people that lived there. Jerusalem was the big town. Jesus, though, born in Bethlehem. A simple place. Different than what most people would have thought. He didn't play favorites. He didn't go to the most popular place. He went to Bethlehem. Then you have later on in chapter 2, after he's born, who do the angels first appear to? The shepherds. You know anything about shepherds? People didn't like them. They were viewed as dirty, second-class citizens. Not folks that you'd want to associate with. And yet, the angels from God show up and announce the birth of God's Son for those people. I think Jesus' example was about playing favorites. You look at that and you're sorely mistaken. Chapter 4, verse 18. I love this. Turn the pages with me. He says, in response to a question, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, verse 18, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. It doesn't say to the popular to the favored, it says to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. On whom? On the poor, on the on the captives, on the blind, on the oppressed. And so he says, look, my mission is not for those, and he says this later in Luke, my mission is not for those who already are righteous in their own sight. My mission is for those who are down and out. That's who I'm trying to reach. And then later in chapter 5, all of chapter 5, he chooses disciples, fishermen. They weren't seminary professors. They weren't pastors already. They weren't the spiritual elite, the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were fishermen hanging out by the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says, you're my guys. You're exactly who I want. Come on. He chooses fishermen as disciples. Later, I love this in chapter 5, he, in verse 12, you begin the story of Jesus a healing a leper. And we don't, really don't know anything about leprosy today, though it still exists in certain parts of the world. We don't see it, but it was an awful skin disease. And the lepers of that time were cast out of the, of the main part of the villages and towns, and they had to live sort of in a community, and everywhere they went, they had to yell, unclean, unclean, which meant, don't get near me, because it might rub off on you, highly contagious. And, and <laughs> it's amazing. Jesus says in verse 13, reaching out his hand, what? He touched him. That would have been unheard of. No way on earth anybody in their right mind, people would have thought, would go and touch a leper, and Jesus did. And then he healed a paralyzed man. 
Then he calls Matthew, who was a tax collector, and goes and, and hangs out in his house as one of his disciples. And, and it says, why has he gone to the home of a tax collector? Why does he hang out with sinners? Because Jesus doesn't play favorites. In verse 6, in chapter 6, rather, verse 27, he highlights the fact that we are to love our enemies. Not just people we prefer. He says, love your enemies. Chapter 7, verses 36 to 39, right down the reference, chapter 7, 36 to 39. He lets a woman who was a rumored prostitute, most likely, hang around him, touch him, and, and, and basically cleanse his feet and body, not in a, in a sexual way in any way, but, but they say in, in response, in chapter 7, in verse 39, it says, when the Pharisees who invited him saw this, she wiping his feet with her hair and kissing him and anointing him, and it says, then he said to himself, the Pharisee, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. That's exactly what Jesus hung out with. They play favorites. Then later in chapter 8, you see that Jesus allows women to join him on his journeys. They followed him. Women were property. We have trouble understanding this because... Thankfully, we don't have these issues as much anymore as we used to. But in first century uh, Galilee, they had those issues. Women were second class. So any, any prophet, any teacher wouldn't, wouldn't allow women to come. In fact, in the synagogue, women had to stand in the balcony. They didn't get to sit right down front. So Jesus allows them to come. In chapter 9, he enters Samaria and then follows that up in chapter 10 with the parable of the good Samaritan. You realize that the Jews were thought there's nothing good about a Samaritan? Period. Nothing. The Pharisees hated them. They were thought to be a, a half-breed kind of race, so to speak. They were thought to be second class. Jesus enters Samaria and then uses a Samaritan as a picture of love and compassion. Jesus played no favorites. Chapter 12, he gives a warning to a rich fool, the parable of the rich fool, causing the rich to say, hold on, just because you are rich does not mean you are favored by God. And so he looks at that. And then chapter 18, he blesses children, and he uses them as an example of true faith. He says, unless you come to me like one of these little kids, you've got no place in the kingdom of God. You have to come with simple faith. And then chapter 19, the famous story of Zacchaeus. <laughs> I love it in verse 6. Zacchaeus came down to him, chapter 19, and welcomed him joyfully. And all who saw it began to celebrate. He says all who saw it began to complain. He's gone to lodge with a sinful man. How about that? How about our Savior not playing favorites? And then all of chapter 23 highlights the death of a sinless, perfect Jesus Christ for sinful, unrighteous humanity. The example of Jesus shows clearly that playing favorites, ongoing favoritism, and authentic Christianity cannot coexist. But that's not all. The second point that James highlights is that it goes not only against the example of Jesus, but it goes against the nature of God. Jesus obviously represents, manifests, is God in human flesh, showing us here's the nature of God. James says in verse 4 of chapter 2, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He says, then in verse 5, listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he's promised to those who love him? The nature of God is not to play favorites. 
He says, look, he, God has offered salvation to all through Jesus Christ, not just to a few, but to all. He doesn't look on the outside, but he's looking on the inside. God, throughout Scripture, is constantly calling the weak or using the weak and the poor and the uneducated, the down and out, for his purposes and glory. From the Old Testament to the New, that's what he does. The nature of God is to not play favorites. So it goes against the nature of God. Not only that, but it goes against common sense. I want you to switch numbers 3 and 4 there in your outline. It goes against common sense. Verses 6 and 7 say, yet you dishonored that poor man. And then he says this, don't the rich, those who you're favoring, don't they oppress you and drag you into the courts? Don't they blaspheme the noble name you bear? He says, it doesn't make any sense what you're doing. The people that you give preferential treatment to, they're not going to return the favor. And, and more so, how would you feel if someone did that to you? Maybe you've been there. You said, look, I, I, let me tell you about it. He says, it goes against common sense. You, you, those people aren't going to repay you with return favoritism, and certainly it wouldn't be nice if it happened to you. It goes against common sense. If we wouldn't want those things done to us, why would we do them to someone else? Not only that, but it goes against the teaching and commands of Scripture. The teaching and commands of Scripture let us know that authentic Christianity and ongoing favoritism cannot exist. Look at verse 8 in James chapter 2. It goes against the teachings and commands of Scripture. If you really carry out the royal law prescribed where? In Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But and here's the teaching. Here's the command. But if you show favoritism, again, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law, so on, it goes on. He says, look, the entire teaching from the Old Testament all the way through the New, the teaching and commands of Scripture, teach us that favoritism is wrong. And favoritism is not only just wrong, but it is a sin, period, any form of it, any form whatsoever. The Bible speaks of only, I want you to, to know this, and I think in our part of the country in particular, uh, this can become an issue, as it has been for years, historically. Realize that the Bible speaks of only one race. You know which race that is? It's the human race. That's it. You, you got, you read the whole Bible this week if you want to. Read it. And you tell me, you tell me where God, where God talks about and discusses any other race but the human race. Not in there. Differences based upon culture or color or anything like that are not God-ordained. They're human inventions. The Bible speaks of one race. Jesus died for all mankind. All of us. And praise God he did. I'm thankful he didn't die just for middle-class white Americans. Or for somebody over in Asia or Africa or Europe or anywhere. I'm glad he did not die just for one specific kind of person. Because I'd probably be left out. One race. The Bible also teaches that not only is there just one race, but that all of us, all of humanity, we're sinners. We have no chance apart from God's grace, regardless of who we are, where we're from, who we're related to, how much money we have, or anything. We have no chance apart from God's grace. That's it. But thankfully, he offered it through Jesus Christ to all. The Bible says that God loves each person equally. That just because you've been a Christian for a long, long time, or that maybe you've only been a Christian for a short period of time, or maybe you don't want anything to do with God. You know what the Bible says? He loves you equally. Because He made you. Because He created you. Because He sent His Son to die for you. 
The Bible says that we are to be imitators of God. And so since God only considers that there's one race, since God considers that we all are on equal ground as sinners, since God says that he loves people equally, and he also says in Galatians that we are to be imitators of God, that Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, follow me, that means come and do what I do, come and live as I live, it only goes to imply that we are to do just as God does, to love as he loves. The Bible says we are to die to our old selves, our old way of thinking, that ingrained way of thinking. Maybe it's been in your family for a long, long time. I'm not saying this stuff is easy. Not at all. I've got my own tendencies as well, let me tell you. I tell you every week, the hardest part and worst part about being a preacher is i got to deal with this stuff all week long before I preach it. It's got to change me first. You tell me I don't get beaten up by the Scripture all week long, I guarantee you I do. And so if it hits you that way, I'm with you. Well, you say, my brothers, I, my, I'm with you. This is where to die to our old selves. Those old ways of favoritism. And live in the new life that Jesus has given us. So favoritism goes against the teaching and commands of Scripture. And finally, it goes against authentic Christianity. I said that at the beginning. It goes against authentic Christianity. Verses 12 and 13 say this. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. That's the Scripture. For judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The truth is we are accountable to God for how we live. We are accountable to His Word for what it says and teaches and commands. And so in this area of our lives, this area of favoritism, we are accountable to God. It's not just lay off no big deal. We are accountable to God in this area. We will be judged, it says, by the law of freedom, by the Scripture. How do we live our lives? And the truth is, those who have been freely loved must freely love in response. Those who have been freely loved must freely love in response. Authentic Christianity is about mercy winning over judgment. What does he say? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Praise God that he did not only judge my sin, but he also sent a Savior so that my sin could be forgiven. Realize that in the nature of God, the judgment says he always, his justice says he always has to judge sin as wrong. But his mercy and love and grace also says that only that, that because it's wrong, and because they have no way to get to me, I'll send a Savior. Mercy Winning over judgment. That's the idea of Christianity. That's the idea of Jesus coming. That should be the idea of our lives. If we show favoritism, the truth is we're rejecting someone. Somebody loses. We're deeming them beyond maybe the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Maybe we're deeming ourselves to be worthy of God's favor and then them to be worthy of only God's judgment. You can see how wrong that is. I really think that favoritism is a major problem. For individuals, for churches, it's a sin. It keeps us from fulfilling our mission. It comes from God, that is to reach and to disciple lost people, people who are without Jesus Christ. Let me give you some statistics, and we'll close here in just a second. It's estimated that there are 195 million unchurched people in America. Does that mean that they're not Christians? I don't know. They're not involved in any kind of church whatsoever, which is... Often a display of true faith. Not 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 the marker, but often. You want to be around God's people, typically. Not always. That's somewhere between 50 and 75 percent of the population. It's estimated by the Kentucky Baptist Convention that two-thirds of Callaway County is unchurched. Bring it home. Two-thirds. They estimate maybe what are there, 30,000 people here, 20,000 of them. 
are in church. Which means that week in and week out, they're not hearing the truth of Jesus Christ. They're not being impacted by God's Word. And likely, they're not growing in their faith. In the last 10 years, the U.S. population has increased by 11.4%, but church membership is down 9.5%. It's a 20% swing. In the last 50 years, churches have failed to gain an additional 2% hold on the population of the United States. Just 2%. In 50 years, we haven't gotten that much. In the last 10 years, no county in the United States has more people in church than 10 years ago. Let me say that again. In the last 10 years, no county in the entire country has more people in church than they did 10 years ago. Not Callaway County, not Marshall County, not anywhere around here, not anywhere in our country. One half of all churches add zero conversion growth each year. None. Transfer growth, yeah. Conversion growth, people finding Jesus for the very first time being saved, zero for half of our churches. North America, interestingly enough, is the only continent where Christianity is not growing. The only one where it's not growing. Everywhere else in the world it's growing. In North America, it's not. So the question then becomes, what are we going to do about it? Not, oh my goodness, that does shock you, maybe, but what are we going to do about it? The truth is we have to change as individuals. We have to change as churches. We can't show favoritism any longer and allow people to go through life never having experienced the love of Jesus Christ through both demonstration and in word. We can't do it. It requires a change on our part. And I really believe that your decision about this, your decision about how you will live after hearing what James under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has to say, not hearing from me, but hearing from God's Word. Your decision on this matters because it can further God's kingdom. It can grow this congregation. It can deepen your faith. It can help you become the mature Christian that God wants you to be. You realize that life as a Christian is just a series of of decisions to be obedient in, in a variety of areas, and this is one of them. So leaving here today, it's a decision. I'm going to be obedient in the area of favoritism. Even though it may be be different than anything I've ever thought of, I want to choose to be obedient. Life is a series of those decisions, and eventually those add up to a life that pleases God. So your decision on this as an individual matters. And our decision on this as a church matters. There's a great book called Radically Unchurched, Who They Are and How to Reach Them. I read this book recently, and it's kind of interesting. He highlights uh, this, the author, Alvin Reed, highlights this on, on page 24 of his book. He says, over the past decade, which I just mentioned to you, membership in Protestant churches dropped 9.5%, while the U.S. population grew 11%. Further, fewer than 1% of American churches grow by conversion. Why is such a failure to reach the unchurched? The church will not reach the unchurched without changing. And he quotes a, a researcher who, who offers these observations about most American churches. He says these six things about most American churches. Number one, reaching non-Christians is a low priority for most churches. Reaching non-Christians, number two, is a low priority for most individual believers. Number three, the biblical concept of lostness has disappeared from most churches and from the minds of most Christians. Number four, most evangelistic methods used today are ineffective in making disciples. Number five, the church focuses on decisions over disciples. And then six, he says, the reason for our our problems, making disciples is interpreted to mean only spiritual growth. He just says, you know what, we're missing it. We look at the statistics and we say, well, not us. 
No county in America, no county in America has seen any church growth in the last 10 years. We're missing it. And I believe it's largely because as Christians we have fallen into the trap of playing favorites. We like other Christians. We like people who know how to do it already. We like people who are already like us, who already have their lives cleaned up. I tell you what, my first my first inclination is to be just like that. I have to admit to you, I think that's human nature. But Jesus says, I've created you to be different. The example of Jesus says, no, 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 no. The nature of God says, no. The teachings and commands of Scripture say, no, we can't do that. Authentic Christianity says we can't be that way. So our decision matters. What do we do now? What do we do now? Let me give you four things that are in no particular order whatsoever. The first is to love equally. To love equally. Regardless of race, money, family, someone's current life situation, or their sin, or their personality, intelligence, appearance, or their perceived spiritual maturity. So my question is, who who have you not loved because of favoritism? I have to ask myself this question all the time. Who who do I not love because I I don't prefer them? Because I don't don't like what they do. Who do I not love because of that? Which people have you taken for granted? Well, you know, maybe even here in church. Well, they, they know people. Which folks have you taken for granted? Who sits alone? Young people, when is the last time that you made a conscious effort to engage in conversation more than just, hello, how are you? with a person significantly older than you that's not related to you. Older folks, turn it around. When? Maybe it happened today. Praise God. I hope we're making strides in that. But if not, let's be aware of those things. Love equally, no matter what. Second is accept equally. We're all sinners. All in need of God's love, and He has accepted us based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not based upon what we can do or who we are, but on the death and resurrection of Jesus. The truth is Jesus knocked down all the hurdles to get to God. He knocked them all down. And I pray we're not a people, we're not individuals, we're not a church that keeps putting hurdles up for people that have to jump over to get to God. Because you don't look this way, because you don't act this way, because you're not from here, because whatever. I pray that we not put those hurdles up. Jesus knocked them all down. He accepted everyone equally based upon the grace of of God. Thirdly, is minister equally. How do we overcome favoritism? We love equally. We accept equally. We minister equally. The truth is this church, like any other, should be existing, and it does exist, to meet the spiritual needs of any who come, and to lead them to Jesus Christ, regardless of who they are. And as I've mentioned before, we're either going to be, just like any other church has to make the choice, And I think it's not a once-and-done choice. I think it's a conscious, every single day, week in and week out choice. We will either be a country club or a rescue station. Pretty simple. And I know in our hearts what we want to be. I know what we want to be. But it's every single day we've got to choose. We are on mission from God. Certainly we're here to take care of each other's needs, and that goes without saying. But we are also to be on mission for God to rescue people who are lost and dying and will wind up in hell one day. We minister equally, and then fourth, we evangelize equally. We ask ourselves, are we fulfilling the mission to go and to make disciples? You realize that 80 to 90 percent, it's estimated, 
of Christians will die without ever having shared their faith in Jesus with another person. 80 to 90% of Christians will die without ever having talked about Jesus to another person. Isn't that amazing? Are we reaching out? Are we aggressive in our prayers about the lost, in our methods, in our efforts to reach out to those who need Jesus? Are we committed to making room for them here, both literally and figuratively? Authentic Christianity and ongoing favoritism, James makes clear, cannot coexist. And so as we close, what will be your decision about this about this truth. What will be your decision? Maybe some today, like I had to this week, need to repent. <laughs> I need to admit, God, I've been doing it wrong. And by the power of Jesus, I want to turn around. And I want to be that authentic Christian that loves equally, that accepts equally, that ministers equally, that evangelizes equally. Maybe as a church, we need to repent and be radically changed by God to say, God, put us on mission. There are some here today, I realize, and you are the one who has been rejected. Maybe by Christians, maybe by the church, maybe just by life in general. And maybe you feel as if you're the one who the favorites have been played against. Let me tell you this from the truth of God's Word. We've already seen God doesn't play favorites. Jesus didn't go to the cross for those who are already righteous. He went to the cross for each one of us. So if you're that person whose life is messed up, if you're that person who maybe you say, well, I just don't know. Understand that God loves you and he sent Jesus to die specifically for you. And if you let him in, he'll restore your life. He'll take the mess and clean it up. And he'll make you whole. But you come to him on his terms. And you say, I believe, and I trust, and I give you my life. And immediately the Bible says he comes in and he begins to make you whole and clean things up. Playing favorites, as we saw earlier, is both ridiculous and it's also sinful. So maybe we need to ask God to change you, to change me, to change us. And I pray that we'll strive to be at least one place in Calvary County. And I can't speak for any other church but at least one place in Callaway County where the love of Jesus is dispersed without reservation. Where people are not judged, but they're simply pointed to Jesus. He's the one you need. Don't jump over our hurdles. Go to him. And where people don't have to be like us in order to find a home here. You join me in prayer. Well, it's a tough topic today. It's kind of heavy. So God, help us to see more than anything, see clearly your truth. Lord, change us. God, as we repent, as we turn away from our attitudes and lifestyles sometimes of favoritism based upon a variety of factors. Lord, as a church, and we turn instead of toward favoritism, but Lord, turn away from that toward Jesus Christ, who has so graciously received us and loved us. We thank you and praise you for that. Lord, help us daily just to make a conscious decision to, to be obedient to you. Lord, help us to be a church, to be a group of individuals, to be moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and friends and relatives, Lord, that 
Instead of judging, we just simply point people to Jesus. Make us that kind of church. Make us those kinds of people. We pray in Jesus' name.